Good morning, Redeemer. How's everybody? A little bit under expectations, I got to admit. Morning, my name's Dave. I'm the pastor here. Um, something most of you don't know about me is that I was born and raised until the age of about 16 in Gary, Indiana. Okay, some of you don't understand the sordid past of Gary. Now, Gary was once a very prosperous steel town in the late 50s, early 60s. In fact, this might come as a shock to some of you. It was actually a convention town where people went to have fun. And then the steel industry plummeted when uh, Japan and Germany uh, had advanced technology and we fell behind. And the city of Gary just took a nosedive. I grew up in a working class part of that town on the east side near the mills. In fact, almost everybody on my block, dad worked at the mills. This is the actual house I grew up in, thanks to Google Earth. And if you can't tell, uh, the windows are boarded, the door is boarded. There appears to be an old tire and some down tree lumber in front. Um, and it looks like nobody's living there right now. And although Gary kind of became a violent town, in fact, I looked it up this year, so far 2018, Gary ranks fifth in homicide rate in cities in the United States. I mean, Chicago, L.A., Houston, all of these big cities, five. But that's an improvement because in the last three years, they've bounced between third and fourth. So they're doing better. In the 1980s, Gary and Washington, D.C. went back and forth as the murder capitals of our nation. Now, when I grew up there, I was fortunate, didn't experience any personal violence, but it was, it was all around. I recall that a uh, classmate of mine in the eighth grade, a young lady, in the summer, in the middle of the afternoon, walking home from a school event at, at the high school, uh, was sexually assaulted and murdered. I mean, this is just kind of the environment. So what I learned to do was be very situationally aware. I learned early on when I first went to high school that if I walked three extra blocks to get on the school bus, I could sit in the front and not wait for it to come to the bottom of my street where I'd be forced to sit in the back of the bus where the smoking and the drugs and the the violence took place. Uh, So I feel like I was blessed. We put our house up for sale in 1969. It sold in 1974, five years. And I don't remember the details of that, but in front of that very house, two years later, the family who lived there, the teenage son, was gunned down in a drive-by shooting. Now, in contrast to that, my beautiful wife grew up just 18 miles from here in a small town called Gosport. And it's a rural town, population 714. And one of the characteristics I always have in my mind about Gosport is they speak their own language. They don't know it, but they do. It's called Gosportian. Well, that's what I call it. And my first introduction to this was when Jackson was about a month old. I'm sitting on the back porch uh, of my in-law's house, and we sat on the back porch in August because they didn't have air conditioning, and that's how you cooled off. And Jackson was a little fussy, and I was moving him back and forth, you know, trying to get him to calm down. My father-in-law looked at me and says, you're wallering that baby. Apparently in Gosportian, there's a verb to waller. And it has something to do with how you handle small children. I'm still to this day not quite sure what that means. So Jane and I, from these two different backgrounds, start dating on February 21st, 1985. It was a Wednesday. We met at 4 in the afternoon. Sunny and 50 was the uh, weather forecast for the day. There are huge husband points, and remember those details. Trust me, guys. Huge. 
So we dated that semester, we dated a little bit in the summer, and then in the fall, I was invited to the first big family event, the Everly Family Reunion. To this day, still takes place on the Sunday of Labor Day, Jane's mom's family huge reunion. So I'm going to get introduced kind of to the family for the first time. And it's a pitch-in at McCormick's Creek State Park, so all the food's laid out in one of the shelters, and I go in and I get my food. Of course, I waited till the end because I wanted to be polite, wanted to make a good impression. And I get my food and I go and I sit down, And for some reason, I had lost Jane. She's wandering around with family or or whatever. So I just sit at a picnic table, and the picnic tables are strung out. And my future mother-in-law is sitting two tables away. And I don't think she knew I was there. Because across from her, Jane's Aunt Phyllis says to her, I see Jane Ellen. And of course, when you're from the country, you always use first name, middle name. I see Jane Ellen brought a young man. And in a very curt comment with very little warmth, no warmth whatsoever, she said, yeah, he's a street kid. (laughs) Which is true, and I wear the moniker proudly, but I bring that up for this reason. Oh, by the way, my mother-in-law and I grew to have great affection for one another. I want to put that to rest before we go on. But the reason I bring that up is, if you've ever been in a situation where someone is making a comment about you, but is unaware you are hearing the comment, Or, as I have sometimes wondered about this incident, someone's making a comment about you. You don't think that they know you're hearing the comment, but they actually do. Did you follow that? Or, what we're going to see in our passage today, where Jesus is speaking to a group of people, while at the same time indirectly speaking about them. So our passage today is from Mark 12. We're still in Mark. Would you stand with me as we read God's Word? Mark 12, the first 12 verses of Mark 12. And we read as follows. And he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the winepress and built a tower and leased it to tenants... And went into another country. When the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent to them another servant and they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another and him they killed. And so with many others, some they beat and some they killed. He had still one other a beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them saying, they will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Have you not read this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. And they were seeking to arrest him, but feared the people, for they perceived that he had told the parable against them. So they left him and went away. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, so thankful uh, for your word uh, we ask that you, our hearts would press into it this morning. Um, 
that it would be something that uh, guides us, that we learn from, that you speak to us powerfully through. Uh, we just have that your, ask that your spirit dwell in this place as we sit under your word. In Jesus' name, amen. You can have a seat. So there's two things we want to do this morning. The first is we're going to kind of walk through this parable step by step so that we can understand it clearly. Parables that Jesus tells specifically often have a cultural context. So when he says something, he's kind of assuming we know a lot more than we may know in the 21st century. So we're going to walk through that kind of specially and also because of the context of who he's speaking to. So we're going to do that first. And then we're going to glean... I don't know how I can count this, either two or three applications from what Jesus is telling in this parable. So let's, let's start with the parable, and let's go step by step, and we're going to start with this opening sentence, and he began to speak to them in parables. Well, the, he is, the, is Jesus, of course, but who's the them? Well, this event is following immediately on the heels of what we learned last week, right? Uh, If we look back to verse 27, we find, And they, the disciples and Jesus, came again to Jerusalem. Remember, this is the, the last week of Christ's life. He made the triumphal entry. He's been teaching in the temple. But in the evenings, he goes back out of town and stays with friends. So he's come back in to Jerusalem again to teach. And they came again to Jerusalem. And he was walking in the temple. The chief... As, as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to them. So this is who he's speaking to. And as we learned last week, these three groups are representative of the Sanhedrin, right? The powerful council in Jerusalem that rules over religious and civil matters, has very extensive powers, confined to Judea. But, but they, are the, they are the guys. They are the powers that be, they are the ones that everybody answers to, right? So Jesus is speaking with these, uh, these leaders. Now, as we do this, I want, I want you to take part in this in this fashion. I want you for the next few moments to assume the role, the attitude of either a scribe, a chief priest, or an elder. Because I want you to see this from their perspective as this parable unfolds. Okay, now, so to be specific, scribes, who are are scribes? Well, scribes are experts in the study of the law of Moses. In fact, their job has been described as this, undistracted study. Wouldn't that be cool? Undistracted study. And they have three functions within the society. Preserve the law, instruct pupils in the law, and administer the law as judges. Okay, so think of them. As lawyers, the two, the two words are, are synonymous. They're, they're lawyers. Um, and many of these scribes were also Pharisees. Doesn't it make sense when you know what you know about Pharisees? So, which of you should assume the role of scribe in our little exercise here? Well, first of all, if you are a lawyer, you're a scribe. Okay? Secondly, if your sin tendency is to be a little self-righteous, a little judgmental, a little of finding fault in others, you assume the role of a scribe. Okay? And if you're not sure if that's you or not, someone may be tapping you on the shoulder, <laughs> giving you that knowing nod, right? Okay, so if that fits you, that's who you're going to be. Okay? Chief priests, who are these guys? Well, that would be the current high priest 
anybody who had been a high priest and anybody who is on the, on the council from the high priest's family because at this time, the position of high priest had become very politicized. So you had, to be, you had to be from the right family and have the right training in order to be a high priest. So, and this became very aristocratic, right? So if you're from a family of privilege, you're from Carmel, for example, <laughs> perhaps, right? Think of yourself as a little bit better than others. Come on, you know your sin tendencies. You don't have to tell anybody, but you know what they are, right? Or if you regularly compare yourself favorably to others, so you assume the role of a chief priest. Again, if you're not sure, watch for the tap on the shoulder and the nod that somebody might help you out. Probably a spouse. Elders. These are the tribal leaders of the other tribe, right? Kind of the, the Sanhedrin sort of goes all the way back to Exodus when Moses was, was leading the people of Israel in the desert. You might recall the incident where his, his father-in-law Jethro notices that he's handling all of these minor affairs all day, all day, all day. And he says, you've got, you got to appoint someone to take care of that. And he appointed heads of all of the family. So if you, if you don't fit into the scribe thing or nobody's told you you do, if you're not a chief priest, then, then you're going to be an elder, Okay. Now, in addition to that role, keep in mind your history with Jesus. And if we just look at the book of Mark, what has happened, we go back to Mark 2, right? There's the uh, account of the crippled man who wanted to get in to see Jesus, and the house was too crowded, and his friends lowered him through the roof. Yeah, right? We recall this. And then do you remember what Jesus said before he said, pick up your mat and walk? He said, son, your sins are forgiven. And there were scribes there. And they were like, whoa, 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 whoa. You can't be doing that, right? Now, those might have been local scribes. Scribes were not just in Jerusalem. They were in the synagogues and the various communities and so forth. But in the next chapter, we see an incident where Mark records scribes who came down from Jerusalem. And this is where Jesus healed a man's hand on the Sabbath. And they were going, wow, who can do this? This must be Beelzebub, right? Do you remember that one? And a few chapters later in Mark 7, there was this incident where scribes from Jerusalem and Pharisees were all upset because Jesus and his disciples weren't washing their hands, right, ceremoniously. And then as we just saw here in Mark 11, the cleansing of the temple, and at the end of that, the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him. And then last week, what happened to you chief priests, scribes, and elders? You demanded Jesus tell you, where, where do you get this authority? And what did he do? Turn the tables on you. Says, tell me about John. Tell me how that happened. You give me an answer, I'll give you an answer. So, you're a chief priest, you're a scribe, or you're an elder. You're a member of this powerful, powerful council. You're a person of authority. And here is this young upstart, this firebrand, from of all places, Galilee, really? In town, making you look bad. He's a threat to your position. He's challenged the foundation of your being. He has outwitted you and made you look bad in front of those you're supposed to lead. Are you ready for the parable now? Everybody a little bit edgy? A little bit irritated? Here we go. A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the wine press and built a tower. Okay, you're all with him on this. You know what this is. 
Okay? A vineyard is a well-known, common picture of the nation of Israel throughout the Old Testament. Psalm 80, um, the, the psalmist is saying to God, hey, you, you brought this vine out of Egypt and you planted it and it grew and it had roots, right? But scribes, those of you who are in the scribe position, you're even more onto it than that. You're like, dude, that's Isaiah 5, right? So if we go to Isaiah 5, this is what the prophet writes way, way, way back when. He says this, Let me sing for my beloved my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones. Sound familiar? And planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out a wine vat in it. And he looked for it to yield grapes. Down to verse 7. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. And the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. So you immediately are like, okay. He started this parable. A man builds a vineyard. So he's talking about the nation of Israel. Right? Notice the similarities between the two. Uh, Planted fine vines. Put a fence around it. In both accounts, there's a wine press or a wine bat. In both accounts, there's a tower to protect the vineyard, right? So he's, he's talking about the nation of Israel. But, scribes, you also know something about that part of Isaiah that I did not read just now. If I go back to it and fill in the gaps, after, after Isaiah says, and he looked for it to yield grapes, the prophet writes, but it yielded wild grapes. Now, some of you like wild berries, this is fun. You go out into the wilderness and you pick wild berries and they're good. This is not what the Lord is saying here. Wild berries are rotten berries. So the Lord has prepared this beautiful vineyard. And what is it producing? Wild grapes. And what is the Lord's response? And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard than I have not done in it? Did, did we see the description of the vineyards? It had everything. Good vine, fertile soil, fence, watchtower, wine press. This operation would make the people at Oliver Winery proud. He's done everything. When I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? And now I tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge and it shall be devoured. I will break down its walls and it shall be trampled down. I will make it a waste. It shall not be pruned or hoed. And briars and thorns shall grow up. I will also command the clouds that they rain no rain upon it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. And he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed, for righteousness, but behold, an outcry. So, you scribes, you're, you're with Jesus here. Vineyard, it's Israel. But wait a minute, this reference is not a very positive one. So just a half a sentence into this parable, if you're one of these Jewish leaders, this is, this is not starting out very well for you. Back to Mark. If I can find my Mark. Here we go. A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the wine press and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. Now, this is an interesting twist. There's no tenants back in Isaiah. Let's reason through this together. If the vineyard is Israel, 
and tenants take care of a vineyard, then the tenants must be the leaders of Israel. Wait a minute. This, this parable is about you. And so far, it's not going very well. And if you think about your previous experience with this fellow Jesus, he has not been very kind in his remarks to you. So, so where we're going to go with this? Further adding to this discomfort is this whole idea of tenant and owner. Because this is, a, this is a well-known economic arrangement in the first century, and typically it doesn't go well. Let's think of the arrangement of tenants and landlords here in Bloomington. Now, if you're a tenant or a landlord, I'm in the room right now, I'm not talking about you. But let's take the average college student and the average college student's rental property and how they probably left the property last week after a year of partying, right? So, if Jesus is using this example from culture of a tenant and a landlord, and the example is one of contention and strife and unhappiness, and the landlord, as we already know, is God, because that's what it says in Isaiah, and things go bad, it's probably not going bad for the owner. It's probably going to go bad for the tenants, right? So let's, let's read on. You guys all a little edgy, a little nervous? Scribes, chief priests, elders? Where's he going with this? You know he's talking about you. What happens? When the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again he sent to them another servant, and they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another, and him they killed. And so with many others, some they beat and some they killed. Okay, so the time comes, the harvest is good. The owner is entitled to his righteous share of the bounty of, of the fruit. So he, send, he sends a servant. This should be an easy transaction. He's beaten and sent away. He sends another. The abuse escalates. This one is struck on the head and treated shamefully. Another is sent. And this one, they killed. More servants, more evil more abuse. But it gets really interesting for you now, chief priests, scribes, and elders, when we get to the second half of verse 5, and so with many others, some they beat and some they killed. Because what Jesus has just done is broadened the effect of what he's saying. In the Old Testament, prophets are called the servants of God. In the Old Testament, we find prophets beaten and killed. What Jesus is saying to you, chief priests, scribes, and elders, is you are a part of a bigger, awful picture of abusing the messengers of God. He's clearly batching you with the historical clergy. Elijah, driven into the wilderness by the monarchy of Israel. Isaiah, traditionally, it's not in Scripture was thought to have been sawn in half by the king of Israel. There's some evidence that Zechariah was stoned to death, and we know that John the Baptist, whom Jesus called the last prophet, had just been beheaded by the king of Israel. And why, says Jesus, were these atrocities carried out? So that the leaders of Israel could have the fruit for themselves. God's servants threaten the position of these leaders. How's it going? You guys good? 
How's this Jesus fellow treating you now that he's come to town? Here comes the hammer. He had still one other, a beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them saying, they will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. Beloved son, finally he sent him. The landowner is either out of servants or out of patience. One left to send his son. Now the hearers of this parable might not pick up on this. But as we have read Mark, beloved son has been used twice specifically otherwise, correct? At Jesus' baptism and at the transfiguration. We know that the parable is talking about Jesus. But these guys aren't dumb. Jesus has just ridden in to shouts of Hosanna. The people are proclaiming him Messiah. He has done very little to veil the fact that he thinks he's the Messiah. And now he's telling you, chief priests, scribes, and elders, about a beloved son, clearly the son of God, because that's what the parable's talking about. You know what he's just done? He has just exposed your plot against him. Feeling a little warm? You're getting that sweaty thing you get when you get really embarrassed, right? He's on to you. Everything is clear to you. The owner is God. The vineyard is the people of God. The servants are the prophets. Jesus himself is the son. And you, the religious leaders of the day, the tenants, you are the cause of all the trouble. You are the ones who mistreated the prophets. You are the ones planning to kill the son. Your intentions have been unmasked. So the tenants not only kill the son, but they deny him a decent burial and throw him out of the vineyard. How perfectly symbolic of Christ being taken out of the city to be brutally murdered. So now Jesus has has a question and an answer for you. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyards to others. There will be judgment. It's going to be taken from you. You'll be destroyed. It's going to be given to others. One last question. Have you not read this scripture? From Psalm 118. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. And they were seeking to arrest him, but feared the people, for they perceived that he had told the parable against them. You think? So they left him and went away. They know that the stone, excuse me, from Psalm 118, is a reference to the Messiah. They know exactly what he's saying. They perceived that the parable was about to him. The the parable is a biting condemnation of their failure. They could do nothing. At least for the moment. Not at the temple. Not in broad daylight. Not with all those adoring people around. So there you have it. There's the parable. What What does it have to say to us? I mean, we like the story. Oh, first of all, I now relieve you of your roles as chief priests, scribes, and elders. Relax. 
a little bit. Not too much, just a little bit. We like the story. We love the story of where the good guy sticks it to the bad guys, yeah? Right? William Wallace at the Battle of Stirling Bridge. General Maximus in the arena with the evil emperor Commodus. None of you get those references. The Avengers always win. Spoiler alert. So what can we take from this? Right? Sometimes, sometimes it's a little hard to get a good personal application from, from, a, from a passage like this, but I think there's, there's a lot to be had here. Right? Whenever I'm, I'm reading Scripture, one of the things I keep in mind to, to, to bring it to my life is I, I could ask three questions. What does this show me about God? God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit. What does this passage show me about me or, or the world? Right? Or what does this passage show me about how I should live? And I, I think the first thing we can take from this, and I think it's very relevant to us here at Redeemer, <clears throat> is one of the things it shows us about God is what we pointed out with the vineyard. God equips his people. God equips his people for his work. Right? And, and we, we see that in, in back in Isaiah where he says, what more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done it? <clears throat> he equips us. But, <clears throat> sorry, <clears throat> he also expects fruit. When I looked for it to yield grapes, because he looks for it to yield grapes, that's what he does, right? And I take great heart. I was talking with some newer people earlier uh, during the greeting time. Uh, I always been kind of a little bit anxious to an extent about where we are as Redeemer, right? As Morgan pointed out, this week and next week, we're on the road, church on the road. Okay. So what? God's going to equip us. It's up to us to bear the fruit. I'm really excited. I don't know what's going to happen. But I've had my faith restored that he is going to equip us. And then by the power of Holy Spirit, we'll, we'll bear fruit. The second lesson from today's passage is, is made clear from, from 1 Peter. 1 Peter says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may declare the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. He's not writing to the nation of Israel. He's writing to believers once you, once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. What Peter is telling us is that we, the church, believers, followers of Christ, we are the vineyard. We are the vineyard of the new covenant. And we are also, if we're going to use the parable, be careful, the tenants. Now, you're used to being uncomfortable about that. That's okay. Right? Royal priesthood. Royal, civil leadership, priesthood, religious leadership. Yes, we have elders in the church. Yes, we have shepherds. Yes, we are to protect and feed the flock. But if you're a believer, you're a royal priest, you're a leader. And guess what? We farm a far richer richer vineyard than they did. We have the complete word of God. Old and New Testament is complete revelation. We have all of the messengers that have gone before. But most importantly, we are each a temple. 
The Holy Spirit dwells in us. Jesus said in Luke 12, from whom much has been given, much is to be expected. So I would look at us as a church and ask us as a church, are we bearing fruit in relation to how God has equipped us? And I would ask myself and I would ask yourself, are we bearing fruit in the manner God has equipped us? Or are we wild grapes? The last lesson from this, uh, to me, is really pretty, pretty astounding. What this passage says about God, to me, is astounding and ridiculous. The owner of the vineyard is God. The vineyard is God's holy people. He puts tenants in charge. God sends a servant to collect what is due to him. The servant is beaten. He sends another. The servant is struck in the head and shamefully treated. He sends another who is killed. Servant after servant, beating after beating, rebuffs, insults, beatings, killings. And then, and then these words. And many more. Now, no one in their right mind, I hope this isn't blasphemous, no human being, let's do that, no human being in his right mind would continue to send servants under these circumstances. But not this being. Servant after servant, messenger after message, messenger, this owner whom Isaiah calls his beloved, this God of ours, persists. And then, in an astonishing and to me ridiculous act of persistence, of persistent love, he sends his beloved son, Who does that? Who sends his beloved son on a mission so certain to be just brutal? And the son goes voluntarily knowing what will face him. What? Paul writes in Philippians, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, humbled himself by by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Did not see equality with God a thing to be grasped. Emptied himself, humbled himself, obedient to the point of death. This parable while judging and condemning the religious leaders of the first century and providing us with a a sober reminder of of who the landowner is, also paints a just beautiful picture of our God and demonstrates just the very same attributes that we saw on the cross, justice and love. He's a God of justice. We like that about him. That means we fall short. And out of love... He came for us. We all have sinned. We all have fallen short. And the penalty for that is death. But God, being rich in mercy, almost got through this one. Because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. 
by grace you have been saved and raised up with him and seated with him in the heavenly places so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and tightness towards us in Christ Jesus. In his persistent love, God himself and the man Jesus Christ paid the penalty. And now we are alive together with him. We are raised up with him and we are seated with him spiritually. And what a glorious day that's going to be when we are physically with him. The parable of the tenants is a parable of judgment. But even within that framework, God's mercy and grace shine through. We are God's vineyard. He has equipped us. We are to bear fruit. But like the tenants, sometimes we're wild grapes. But God, graceful and merciful to us, in a persistent love, loves us. Jesus is telling this parable just literally hours before his death. He's got a sight set on the cross. He knows who these guys are. He knows what lies ahead of him. And just a few hours before in that upper room, he gathers with his disciples, shares a meal, and announces the new covenant that made us the new vineyard. We're about to celebrate that same meal. This is a meal for those who have come to Christ, who have taken his free gift of salvation, who have given their lives to him. If that's not you and you have questions, I'll be in the back. There'll be prayer responders over in the gym. We'd love to talk to you, tell you about this little vineyard of ours, tell you about our owner, what he's done for us. Let's pray. Father God, thankful uh, for your word, for its message, for its clarity. Um, for how you show us who we are, uh, but more so, Father, that you show us who you are and what you have done and your persistent love for us. Father, forgive us when we fall short. Uh, forgive us when we daily are wild grapes and not the fruit that you desire. Um, mold us, shape us, transform us by your spirit. Uh, sanctify us in your love. Father, uh, so grateful um, that you are the the vineyard owner that you are. In Jesus' name, amen.